Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 329. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 329 you're listening to. My guest today is mastering engineer Joe Kathness. Joe has mastered the soundtrack music for games such as Borderlands and the Netflix movie Close, bands such as Don Martin 3 and Palooka 5, and he does it all from the comfort of his mastering studio located in his backyard in Nottingham, England. Joe's also a longtime listener to Working Class Audio, and I'm thrilled he's here on the show today, and I think you're going to enjoy our conversation very much. Joe Kathness, coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about patience. I consider myself an empathetic and understanding person. Now, that said, at the age of 51, I realize that I can be impatient as hell. Whether it's traffic, my kids moving slow and I say we need to leave the house for an appointment or technology, I can get downright grumpy when things or people don't move at the pace I expect them to. My patience has also led me to realize that I have a tendency to mentally want to move on once a project is done. That means I don't have the patience to see that documentation and archiving is done right all the time or following through on billing because I just want to move on to the next mix and the next podcast, the next event, etc., etc. And sometimes I feel like a speeding car that will not stop until it wrecks. So, like I said, I'm 51 now and, and I should know better. I know that there are huge advantages to slowing down and making sure things are done right. That means keeping online spreadsheets to know where files or Pro Tools sessions are located. That means slowing down and making sure I archive a podcast properly. It means a huge list of things that we could be here all day naming, but as you have figured out already, I'm impatient and would rather you as my audience stay with me and know what that list is. In the long run, what does this all mean? It means I can't schedule as much as I want to in a day. It means I need to schedule projects and give them the time that they need to be taken care of in a quality manner. Me kicking ass on a mix for a client is only one part of the deal. I need to archive and document that mix, know where it is, and make sure that if I'm not here on this planet, someone can easily look at my files and notes and know what I was thinking. I'm not gonna bullshit you and tell you that I have all this figured out. But I am aware of this and I know what I need to do. I also know that I need to also give my kids a break and show more patience there. It starts there and it trickles down into my clients, my work, and myself. So if you're anything like me, my advice is slow down, do things right, not fast. This isn't a race. And I would rather be remembered for doing quality work, not fast work. That's my rant. Thanks for listening and thanks for your patience. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, 
It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Joe Kathness here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hello, nice to be here. Nice to have you here. You're talking to us from where? Nottingham, England, in the East Midlands, in the UK. Fantastic. Well, it's good to have you here. I know that you're a longtime listener of the show. I've seen you comment in social media on various posts, and I've followed you on LinkedIn and it's been in the back of my mind to ask you to come on the show. So thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Well, that's great. I've, I think I have actually listened to every single episode. I've listened to certain episodes several times, and it's my go-to motivation in the bath, 7 a.m. listen. So are you You must be taking hour-long baths? It depends. <laughs> it depends what kind of mood I'm in when I wake up, <laughs> how much my back hurts from the day before. Yeah, uh, occasionally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> from sitting in front of that computer, I understand. Yeah. Well, let's get going. You know where this all starts. Where did you start? Yep. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Stratford-Upon-Avon, which is famous for being the birthplace of William Shakespeare, mm. which is a fairly small town with not much in it other than William Shakespeare, just south of Birmingham, which is the second biggest city in England. And then I moved to Nottingham where I am now when I was 18. So I've kind of had half my life there and half my life here. And your early upbringing, was there a band program, music program 
that was part of that? No, I did a lot of music and played in bands and did all that sort of stuff. But as far as academia and music goes, I didn't really get on very well with anything. <laughs> School and programs and all that kind of stuff wasn't my kind of thing. I was a adamant punk rocker, so I didn't really do much musical education until much later on. When did audio and recording come onto your radar? When did it become important to you? So me and my brother had a sort of like a teenager room that I realized now was my parents trying to get us out of the rest of the house made for us, uh, where we would play computer games, listen to music and mess about with PC stuff. We were quite sort of nerdy, early internet computer PC people. And we had, like almost everybody seems to have had, one of the Fostec or Tascam four tracks. I can't remember which one, but we experimented a lot with that. And we got, basically, as, as soon as you could get DAWs on a home PC working, I think we used one called Making Waves, <laughs> some sort of old obsolete program. We did a lot of the sort of the standard messing around, time-stretching voices, making silly remixes of Nine Inch Nail songs and things like that. But yeah, probably from about the age of 12, 13, I started messing about with audio. And did you ever think this is what I want to do for a living or was this just a hobby? Pretty much from the second I realized that I could do it for a living, I started. I haven't really deviated from that path since. We had a slightly older friend who had gone to a music technology, a fledgling music technology college in Nottingham called Confetti. And he sort of came back and reported that, you know, he'd spoken to people who were real audio engineers when I was probably about 14. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, yeah, if that's a job, that's going to be the job. I don't really have any interest in anything else. And my, out of pure bloody mindedness, here I am now. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your first professional job in audio? Yeah, so I briefly did some sales stuff. Mm -hmm. We used to work for a company called Millennium here in the UK. But as far as actually doing work for people, my friend Balti, who's a, a fairly well-known punk and hardcore and, and like extreme metal producer here in Nottingham, he had a studio and he'd expanded his, you know, he doubled the floor space by getting the studio next to it. And he said, oh, you, you like sitting down and being analytical with audio. Why don't you try mastering as like a thing? I'm, you know, I'm doing all these demos we could literally send them across the other side of the studio. You could set up a little room there and for 20 quid, 30 quid or whatever, do a quick master on stuff. So I started by basically tagging onto the end of somebody else's studio that was expanding, literally. And yeah, I was doing mostly punk and hardcore demos. And at the same time, I was also doing a lot of electronic music personally, and I was doing a lot of DJing and those two worlds, the sort of getting stuff ready to play in clubs and also punk bands that are going on tour were my sort of first two income streams. Interesting. So did you know what mastering was in the early stages of your audio career? No, I pretty much just made a studio and wrote, wrote the word mastering on the internet. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I, 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 I've said this to a few people who have, have asked me for advice or have I've seen on forums and stuff. And Dave, you know, before you become a professional mastering engineer, you need to do X, Y, Z. And I think personally, a lot of it is is there's a sort of gatekeeper mentality that you, if you go too deep onto forums and things. But I I did all right by 
just literally, I think I got all the plugins that were in Bobcat's book. I bought <laughs> those and I got some not very good monitor speakers. And I just literally opened the door and said, hey, I'm doing mastering. And, you know, didn't charge much because I knew that it wouldn't be a particularly good product. But I just decided this is what I was going to do. Like people just said to me, my personality and the way that I think, I probably wouldn't fare well as a recording engineer, a mixing engineer, Mm -hmm. because I'd rather be on my own and I'd rather spend lots of time concentrating and not being bothered. And that's basically what my friend who had the studio said. He's like, I don't really particularly want to do the mastering. That's your kind of the way you are anyway, the way you talk about stuff when, when I show you stuff. So why don't you just do it for me? And that's what I did. Are you a bit of an introvert? Yeah, big time. Okay. When I do recording sessions, when I like doing them with my own bands and stuff, I love the fact that I'm not sitting in the same chair and I get around and it's like, oh, let's plug this amp in or we'll try doing overdub. But the few times where I've done that, where other people have said, oh yeah, let, you know, unplug that and, and change it and turn it around or we're actually going to put some reverb on that. Like, it freaks me out. I don't like it. I'd much rather just have two channels, a very limited amount of things that you can actually put on the audio and get really, really deep into those things. Like, the, I don't like chaos. I don't like clutter. I don't like audio clutter and I don't like physical clutter. I need to basically just be sent something, left alone for a day, and then upload it in the evening and, you know, get feedback and not really have any bother, anybody next to me. Like I've done attended sessions, but I don't particularly like them. I do them with my friends, but the idea of being watched and the idea of not being able to just sort of lose 15 minutes on a low shelf, you know, and, and switching between different things without really being aware of what I'm doing, but just doing it, you know, with my eyes closed, I find frustrating, at best frustrating, worst terrifying, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> So in those early days, what did you learn about mastering? Where where were your sources of, of knowledge to improve upon the craft? Mostly just through forums and through reading. I made good relationships with, with friendly mastering engineers. Although I, when I first started, I was 21. So I had the attitude of a 21-year-old. Mm-hmm. And a 21-year-old on the early internet is not a particularly nice person to <laughs> go back and see your own posts. But there was a couple of people like Bob Mack from Subvert, for example, and a couple of the really friendly mastering engineers who have mostly been on your podcast, who, you know, would send a PM and say, oh, just so you know, like maybe chill out a little bit on this. But if you are interested in what this sort of limiter actually does, like here's a little paragraph on it. So I think just by trying to sort of push my way through the door on the internet and announcing that I'm doing mastering, I think turned off half the people that I engaged with at the start, but there were certain people who thought, well, actually maybe, you know, it's worth in spending a bit of time doing some small bits of mentoring and and just checking in on this guy. And I, and I try and do that now for other people to sort of give back because it's, if anything, the forums and the Facebook groups are even more chaotic than they used to be, which is hard to believe in some ways, but yeah, <laughs> that's how it is, I think. That's, that's how it can be. I have to say just... A shout out to uh, mastering engineer, Justin Perkins. I think Justin, who's been on the show, Justin on the forums really puts out great information to me in a balanced way that people seem to to enjoy. And I'm wondering if now that you look back at the 21-year-old Joe, 
Do you think that you can look at the 21-year-old Joe now and, and be empathetic to the other 21-year-old Joes coming into the craft? Yeah, I think so. I, I agree with what you say about Justin. I've, I've spoken to him recently about some of this stuff because I, I have an ongoing love-hate relationship with the biggest forum in pro audio. And we actually had a sort of like conversation about, should I should I delete my whole login? Because I, had, I did some research into it and I was like, if you delete it, it takes your name off it, but the information stays. But the idea that you know, in five years' time, someone else who's getting into mastering is asking a really obscure question about metadata, and I've written it out for somebody, but they can't, you know, there's a bit missing or it needs updating, and they can't Google my name. Doesn't seem fair. So my current technique is to log out of the forums on everything, and then occasionally check in to see if anybody's PM'd me and said, oh yeah, how did you get on with that limiter, you know, or or Mm -hmm. whatever, because I do get quite a lot of messages like that. And it's just a matter of trying to keep it as constructive as possible without having an existential crisis about the pro audio world every single time I log on, <laughs> which is what has happened recently. <laughs> but I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the fact that now there's been generations like myself who have been on social media and been on forums and, and seen them evolve. And I'm 34, so I was on the internet at its pure chaos moment. You know, in the early 2000s, I was the first group of teenagers who went on the internet. So I've seen every ugly thing that could ever happen on forums. And I think now you've got that generation plus the generation of professionals who are willing to engage with younger people. And it's sort of starting to reach an equilibrium now that I think is productive. Facebook is a little bit more chaotic, but I'm cautiously optimistic that the students of the next generation of pro audio will be able to look at it and understand what we've said. What do you think the early mistakes are that you made as a mastering engineer, you know, getting away from the the internet side of it for a bit? Talk to me about the business or the techniques. Did you make anything, any catastrophic mistakes or even mistakes that you really learned well from? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the main mistake that I made was to try and mirror what other people's success looked like as opposed to what it actually was. So when I first started out, I pretty much have the same setup that I have now, bar better speakers and and a better room and everything. I started out with very, very boring plugins. Mm-hmm. You know, the real like Sonox and TC and all these people that make like stuff for broadcast where it's very utilitarian. And then I sort of went off for a bit and got very into analog stuff and got very into the idea of running stuff through things and experimenting with sounds. And I lived pretty much in abject poverty for like five years of my life with like £4,000 worth of mastering equipment. And looking back on it now, I have no idea why I did that because all I really needed to do was to go to somebody else's studio and then say, oh yeah, this is all the gear I've got But really what it's about is, and then talk shop properly, talk about client relationships, talk about managing expectations and, you know, how to do good QC and all that kind of stuff. But because I didn't have any sort of direct mentorship when I first started out, I sort of just went on websites and thought, well, gear shot, you know, 45 degree angle, you've got, you know, a Sontech and a massive passive and all this stuff. And I just thought, well, that's what I need. Obviously that's I'll do that, I'll take a good photo of it, I'll put it on my website, and I'll get loads of clients. And of course, I started buying gear, 
and I started buying more gear. And then my relationship that I was in at the time broke down, I had to get into a new house. And I found myself in the perverse position of having a really small, not very good space full of equipment that would have given me enough money to put a down payment on a mortgage. Mm. And the existential dread that hits when you realise what you've done and that your clients don't care, they've never asked. The only clients that have ever, I'd say clients, prospective clients that ask about equipment, generally don't actually end up being clients. You know, people are interested and they want to talk about stuff. But the people who pay my wages now are people who don't even know what an EQ is really or what a compressor is. They pay me to know that and they pay me to make decisions about that stuff. And the result and the fact that people buy the records is the, the only proof they need. So I do sometimes, I've, I've been speaking to someone recently who's going through a similar thing where they're not sure about whether they want to carry on accumulating equipment. And I said, look, if you're thinking about it and you're thinking, do I need this stuff? Then you probably don't need that specific set of equipment because you've only had it for half a year, a year, and you're already thinking like, am I really making any money out of this? And to be honest, you know, as unsexy as it is, the the bottom line is, are you making money and are your clients happy? And everything else really doesn't, everything else really, you could indulge in something else. You know, if you like buying stuff, then get into buying, I don't know, anything, anything cr that involves a craft and, and putting, a, putting a system together, you can do that on a very small scale. You know, the enjoyment of eBay auctions and the enjoyment of going on forums can be done within, you know, the £10 bracket, not the £10,000 bracket that I thought I had to be in to be successful. It's interesting, though. You know, we really get obsessed with the studio furniture and how many rack spaces do I need? Well, how much gear am I going to buy? And where am I going to plug all this in? And, you know, it's just it just it goes on and on and on and on and on. And I'm at a point where I have one piece of outboard gear that I depend on that is not in plug-in form. And other than that, everything else is in plug-in form. And every time I see a piece of gear that I consider buying, and in fact, there's been a couple lately that I've seen that I'm like, ooh, that would be cool, maybe. And then I start to get into the adult mindset <laughs> that I've built over the years. And I realize, but that means that if I want to be portable, I can't be portable with that. That's too big. Can't go that route. We focus all our attention on that. And then we don't focus all of our attention on taking care of the client and properly letting people know that we're doing this. We're, we're too fixated on the gear. Yeah, I think the question is not what can you have, but what can you do? And I think things like portability, recallability, and you know, not having downtime, to me, I have this thing that I, I sometimes say when people talk about, you know, I'm setting up a mastering studio on a forum and people say, oh yeah, you should get a this, this and this and this. And I just always say like, you know, these computer things are going to be huge. Like one day, the entire world, the complexities of the financial industries, the medical world, everything runs on incredibly well put together, tested algorithms that run on computers. The idea that somehow audio can't be inside a computer and never leave it because of some sort of, I don't even know what it is, it's sort of like a sacred text that doesn't exist that people sort of, that, that they call up when they talk on 
you know, they talk to other people. And it doesn't really mean anything. Like, the, you know, one thing it does mean that I noticed as well is that if you go from a DA through some analog equipment or through some cables back into an AD, it does change the sound. And if all you want to do is put a very transparent high shelf and a bit of limiting on something, and you're doing that by coming out of a computer, adding something to the sound that you don't actually want, like it seems perverse, really. Like I did it for so many years. But now thinking about it, if you explain that to, you know, to an alien or someone who doesn't know anything about audio, <laughs> you'd say, oh, I do these steps. And they'll say, oh, why did you do that? And you go, well, um, I'm not really sure why I, why I do it. You know, I, I could say, well, I do it because I want to use my high, my high shelf and my, my analog EQ. But then they, they could say, oh, why do you want to use that high shelf? And the answer would probably be because I paid loads of money for it and it's in front of me. And that's the way my template is set up. Not no other real reason beyond that. You know, I'm completely open about the fact that I went completely in the box and I'm hoping to be somebody who people can say like, oh, you know, there is a there is a guy, there are a couple of guys who do mastering, professional, full-time, have their own studios and they work in the box and have no... I, mean, I think it's shame is the thing that people do have about this stuff. And I, I can tell you that the less analog gear I've had the more I've put my prices up and the more work I've had. Like the, 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 the curve is inverse because I can work quicker. I can spend more time on QC. I can spend a lot more time talking about the projects. And, you know, like I do some very complex multi-disc reissues that I might transfer one track from tape, one track's an MP3 that someone recorded on their phone, you know, and then there's three new studio tracks they wanted to add on, onto it. And at no point does taking all of that out of a computer, recording it in real time to do one high shelf and record it back in, make any sense. But me spending another hour writing a sort of project plan and explaining the audio in a way that people can understand and explaining the specifications, oh, this is what you've sent me, this is what I can do with it, this is where you can go with the vinyl. For the metadata, you might want to consider X, Y, Z. I can spend two hours doing that a day instead of you know recalling stuff. And the clients are over the moon as far as I can tell. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, I'm an advocate for it, and I think it's no no secret that I'm an advocate for it. I've talked about it endlessly on this show. And not to say that we mentioned Justin. I know Justin works out of the box, but he also works partly in the box, depending on the project. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, for some people, it's a workflow issue. It's a tactile thing. They like to touch yeah. the knobs, and that's cool. But I think that it's not it's not entirely necessary, as we both, I think, know and have discovered, because I've never had a mastering client say, what are you running that through? There's n That's never been part of the conversation. It's always like, in fact, it's always this. It's always, we love it. Can you make it louder? <laughs> Can you make it just a little bit louder? That's that's the only question I ever get about mastering. I mean, the other thing with with recalls, I would say, that's that's related to that is that when I was working that way, and I had several things out the box and things in the box either side of it, which I know is how the majority of mastering engineers work and, you know, all power to them. Like, I'm not criticising anybody for the way that they want to be. But when my critical listening got to the point where I could hear the difference in the gain structure if I had to go and do a recall, and I, I wasn't happy just to chuck an extra couple of dBs cut on the already processed master because it changed the way the limiter worked and it changed the way the compressor worked, and I did have to go back and redo the whole thing, you know, when my listening got to that point, that's really when I thought, well, if I if I had this in plugin form, I could literally drag the plugins either side of each other, 
or I could drop like DMG have that thing track control where you can just do like gain in between plugins as a plugin. And to do that in hardware, I've then got to pay a, quite a lot of money to have a console that's got an insert point where I can go back to gain to do trims. And then that trim has to be absolutely perfect and that has to be serviced. And yeah, I just, as far as revisions go, working in the box is fantastic because you can pretty much do anything. You can do three or four revision versions just by moving a fader and then going export, moving a fader, export, and then giving that to the client and give, saying, look, I've done you three versions. They're all brighter, but they're brighter in different ways. Tell me what you think about them, which would have taken me hours if I was doing it out of the box. Yeah. I mean, we could we could go on and on about how I think we both are fans of in-the-box work and and the advantages that we find in it. But let's talk about just, and we don't have to go down a gear rabbit hole here, but I think the bias that, and I'm, this is my perception, this is, there's no, I don't have any information to back this up, but I think that a lot of people who dismiss those of us who work in the box in this capacity have this image of us sitting on a laptop in a room that is acoustically not treated with a crap pair of speakers and not much else. And they kind of degrade the image down in their head to dismiss. So I know that's not how you're working. So can you tell me a bit about then, if the importance of mastering for you is not placed in a bunch of outboard gear, where is it placed? So I'm a big fan of ergonomics and logistics and how I have set stuff set up. Like my room isn't massive. It's the size of a large garden office. I mean, that's what it is. I built it as that, you know, again, talking about pragmatism. Mm -hmm. You know, I built the studio on my property, so I didn't build it with crazy acoustic building from the inside and and built it and pay lots of money to an acoustic designer. If I had the money, I would do that. I built it in a way that when I sell the house, especially post-COVID, this is going to be a massive thing, hopefully, someone can work from home. This, this could make a fantastic yoga studio or a beauty therapist or whatever. I built it like that and then I put the mastering room inside it. So I've spent a lot of time on making sure that the internet is really fast and that I've got a cable that runs from the, you know, from the house directly off the router into the studio. I spent a lot of time making sure that I can get to everything. So I've got, I do, I do quite a bit of transfer as well. So I've got a quarter inch tape machine here. I've got a really nice cassette, DAT, mini disc, PCM F1. I'm a big nerd when it comes to vintage digital transfer stuff. I've got a load of turntable stuff for QCing test pressings, which is genuinely quite a big part of how I do my business. And I've got like I've got a vintage mastering computer here with Sadie 2 on it, which is connected up to my my main setup in the middle. So I've really made a point of having lots of points of connectivity, lots of access and being able to take on projects where I'm going to have to have a pile of tapes one side of the room. I'm going to have to have a tape playing. I need to be able to then track something off cassette and I need to do it all in one session. I need to be able to QC it and I need to do that in one day. That's kind of what I've done. I've stripped. So the center of my room is very, very small. My listening area is very clear. And everything else is about access and being able to provide a range of services without having to change anything, plugging in, routing. It's all basically straight point to point. And yeah, that's kind of what I do. As far as the test pressing stuff, I think 
is interesting because in a world where a lot of us now are doing a lot of vinyl stuff, but it's purely digital pre-mastering, there's kind of this thing where people send stuff off to a pressing plant, they get the test pressings back and they're like, well, it's on the record. That's basically as far as they can go with the QC. But I have a, a reference turntable, which is a mid-priced project turntable, and I have lights and I have a camera set up for it. So I can QC actual pressings while listening and provide reports. And I've done a lot of work with that. And we found some, you know, we found stuff that would have resulted in a lot of records that have cost a lot of money being sent back if I hadn't done that particular work. So putting more time in, I mean, it's, this is analog stuff, you know, this is still fun stuff to, go, to, to, have a, to have a look at and to learn about. And I've got a microscope for making sure I align, you know, the cartridge properly. But I just put it into that instead of processing. So I've still, I've still got a bit of gear to play around with, but it's not the two-channel compression limiting equalization. That's interesting, though. But you've put the, the focus on the tools that you're going to need to help somebody get something from one format to another format with great ease. You said something, though, that confused me a bit. You said you've got this setup with the turntable with lights and camera. What's the purpose of that? Okay, so... One of the problems that you sometimes get with test pressings is there are issues which, which are very hard to diagnose as far as where they are in the process. So, you know, whether it's actually in the pressing itself, whether it's in the stamper, is there damage on the stamper? Did we send a bad pre-master and they cut it anyway? And being able to actually look at the record itself and being able to take photographs and send that over. So, for example... When I reject a test pressing, I will, if needs be, send a sort of letter-headed thing with photographs, an explanation, lists of the gear that I've used, and explain what I've seen, what I think it might be, and then be able to send that to the, the plant and the cutting engineer. And I find that to be so much more productive than what often happens, which is that people put on test presses and they find pops, clicks, issues... And then beyond that point, there's no real language for a record label or a band to then communicate with an engineer at a, a pressing plant. Hmm. So I try to do everything I can to be an extra step. So it's it's kind of like a wraparound service where I will do all the pre-mastering, get everything sequenced, and then, you know, all the different versions and everything. Send that out, but it's not that's not where my service stops. I say, well... You need to be able to, in the same way that if you send a digital proof for a CD mm -hmm. to a client, they need to be able to hear what it actually is going to sound like. That's how they want to hear the mastering. So if I can provide them with a, a reference recording and any visual reports of any issues, that's kind of me showing pride in my work. And it's also providing a service that is is in a world where not everybody has a lathe in their studio mm. and not everybody can afford to pay for a named engineer to cut their records, it gives them an extra level of security. And I think mastering in its most pure form should be a quality control step and it should be a transfer step from production and, and sort of music and the art to the actual format that people hear. So I think with, a, with the vinyl resurgence and lots of new vinyl pressings and a lot of, you know, People who never made vinyl from the 2000s, especially where there was a big dip in especially rock, rock and pop music now coming to make stuff on vinyl. It costs a lot of money to the consumer. We're talking like 25, 35 pounds for an LP. So 
being able to give an extra step that isn't just essentially pressing it and chucking it out into the world, to me, that's just part of mastering in 2021. That's something that I can do that I would have done by cutting the lacquer and doing the test cuts and everything if I was a mastering engineer back in the day. Is it tempting for you to go into that world of, of cutting lacquers? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I have friends who have lathes. I have a friend who locally has a lathe that's never really been fully optimized. I think I've got the mindset for it. I've had several, you know, fairly reputable, just vinyl people say to me, oh, have you ever thought about trying to get a VMS 60 and, you know, getting a new head for it and stuff? And really, for me, I'm busy enough doing what I do now, which is a lot of vinyl pre-mastering, which, you know, is the correct term for it, but to the client, it's just mastering, the vinyl mastering, you know, not the cutting, but the, the preparation of the sides. And what I'm doing seems to be working. You know, I've got a good relationship with, with some pressing brokers and pressing plants in Europe. And this rapport between the client, me as a mastering engineer, the actual cutting engineer, and then me as a QC engineer for the client, and then bring it around in a circle, seems to be working better than, you know, me spending hours and hours trying to work out why I blew the cut ahead and why I blew it again. Because, you know, I've, I've listened to the, the episodes, like Adam Gonzalez's episode is great, where he's talking about how he's building the new room. And he's done some, he's been very open about it. He's done some great videos. And he's made a point about trying to pass on that information. Because I know that he's very keen on preserving the Scully Lathe knowledge and legacy of that. But I just think that's great. I'll listen to his episode of the podcast to get my kicks out of that sort of world and <laughs> vicariously enjoy that. I've got very good at separating out my vicarious enjoyment of other people doing stuff in the mastering world and me feeling like I'm missing out. Like I don't have mastering FOMO anymore. I used to quite a lot. But you know, now people can make videos and stuff. Like it's great. Like I watched a two hour long video of someone talking about a guy in his 70s transcribing uh, 16 inch transcription discs from the 50s. And I just watched it when I couldn't sleep one night. And that's great. Like, I'd love to do that, but I'll just watch the video again if I have a desire to do it. And it'll be a fleeting thing. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Just to put a cap on this, the QC process in mastering, I think it'd be really informative for those that don't know what the QC process is, whether it be for vinyl or digital or whatever. Can you explain that process to my audience that doesn't understand that? Yeah, so without getting into the technicalities of what I specifically use, QC should always be done at any stage where anything is rendered or transferred or created. So if I transfer a cassette for somebody, I transfer it, listen to it, then QC it. If it's then processed again, something's changed, it's exported, limited, QC'd it. If there's a loud version for digital, and if there's a, a version with, with more headroom for vinyl, you QC it. And the way that you QC is my experience in the digital sense is to load it into a different piece of software. I use Isotope RX for this because it's quite good for then if you do need to get rid of something, you can just quickly do it. And it needs to have a visual readout of the waveform. And so you can see any pops and crackles and glitches and stuff. But it also needs to have the information about the metadata and the audio specs itself. So one of the things that would have saved me a lot of heartache early on in my career would QCing the actual pre-masters themselves. I mean, everybody's done that thing of working on a project at 48 when it's actually 41. And the client says, why do I sound like a chipmunk? Or why do we now sound like a sludge metal band? Like that's something that everybody does when they're just like excited and like chuck it in my DAW. But no, having stringent QC at every single step, every time the audio changes hands between two people and every time you're about to send something, you need to do a listen. And what I do is I have a completely separate monitoring chain for QC. I use Sennheiser HD 600s because they have particularly good response for anything which is fast. So my actual monitors have great bass. I can work on them all day, but my headphones are for something completely different. Like I've got no interest in EQing on my headphones. I use it to listen for listen for limited distortion, for pops and clicks, gaps in the audio. And I do that passively. I listen to, when I'm doing QC, I do it in a different state of mind and I do it at a different time of day. I might do it the next day, for example. And I usually do it just while like reading something. Like I'll listen and I'll read Reddit or I'll go on the forums and I'm not thinking about the EQ. I've forgotten which compressor I've used, but the second something drops out or there's a, you know, there's a gap or a sample is missing and you can hear a click or that limiter that you thought when you when you're monitoring loud and you're like, that limiter is sounding amazing. Like I love the aggression of it. But actually what you're doing is every time the vocalist does the crescendo at the end of the verse, it starts to, to shred a little bit. Things that you don't notice when you're having a great time listening to stuff. And that's what QC is. If you don't have that stage, you know, if you don't, take your mind to a different place and then listen to it again. You can't really feel confident, in my opinion, that the client in all of their variables in their listening situation is going to be hearing what you want to put your name on and what you actually want to send to them. And QC audience is quality control, in case you were wondering. Yeah, sometimes in some industries, they call it QA, quality assurance, but 
quality yeah we've always called it qc in mastering as far as i know so let's talk about how you charge your clients you seem to provide a lot of parts of the service including doing a qc of the vinyl references that come back so do you charge by the song and do you charge by the hour how is that structured no i charge by the song and then i kind of take it with a pinch of salt if i get the pre-masters and they're not what I expect as far as, you know, if they're very, very short or if it's, I work on a lot of like fairly avant-garde stuff where it's like one track's just a drone and then the other track's like a little snippet of something. So I try and put it more rounded for what it would be for an entire album. But if it's pop, rock, you know, something that has a song format, then I charge per song and then it kind of gets cheaper and cheaper the more tracks you have, which is fairly common, I think, these days. And then for extra services, it's either like a percentage of that. So for a second format, say a vinyl or a cassette pre-master, I charge 20% of the track rate, which I find quite quite good because if people aren't sure, it's like, well, it's only 20% extra. You don't have to come back and start a new project to the vinyl. You know, say you've been touring this thing and actually people want the vinyl, you know, you've got the feedback from your, your sort of prospective market. I try and make it so that the client has a whole set of what they might need in the future and that's affordable to them. So if I'm going to do MP3s or I'm going to do like 24-bit masters, that's just 10% because I'm really only charging for the QC time. If I have to do any sample rate changes or bit depth changes, I just want to make sure that that export has gone well. I don't charge anything extra for metadata. I make a point of saying to clients, you can have as much metadata or as little metadata as you want. If you're doing just a WAV release and it's going to go up on Bandcamp and Spotify, but also you might want to send it out for promo. It probably is worth putting the metadata on the WAVs because if they're going to then put that in their, their program and they're going to play it on their radio show, they want to read it off the screen. They have the proper title and they have the proper name of the EP and it, it helps. And it, for the sake of just writing stuff in, it's worth doing. And I, and I provide like templates for people. I've, I've made a whole load of templates that anybody can use on my website for metadata. And I make a point of saying what is... CD metadata, like what CD text actually is, what composer means. I've had some quite funny things for album message where people have written like the aesthetic message of their album, which is actually, you know, <laughs> album message is a very obscure piece of metadata, which I don't think any anybody uses. But I put it all up there so that anybody can put as much information in as they want. And I don't charge anything for that because for me, like that's just part of what a WAV or an MP3 or whatever is. CDs, I charge extra for DDPs just because, again, you've got an extra layer of responsibility in QC. Mm -hmm. You know, with programs like Hofer, it's very, very easy to just do a production master and just do versions. So I think you have to charge a fair price for that. I've, I know that back in the days of PCM 1630s and Exabyte DDP masters and all that kind of stuff, some people have their prices pegged more towards what they did then. £100 plus for a, for a DDP, you know, and a reference disc and all that sort of stuff. But I, I try to keep it relative to the amount of time I'm going to spend just because I think, I think that's the, the fairest way to do it, really. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what is a great tool tip that you can give us with regards to metadata manipulation? Yeah, so there's a, I think what you need is you need something where you can input full CD audio metadata. Mm-hmm that can also then convert that to MP3 tags. And you also need something that you can read out the metadata from. So I don't really use Wavelab very often, but it has a very good thing for investigating metadata. I've actually had a client ask me, uh, one of my, my long-term clients, 
as a service, can you tell me if this WAV has metadata in it and what the metadata is? Because sometimes people want to remove it because it says exported at 10 past one on logic in 2012 on the, the, you know, the metadata tag. And they want to remove that because just for, you know, for consistency of where it's being sent over to. So I have actually had people ask me, you know, it's just things as well, like someone gives you an archive and they're like, I'm pretty sure the song wasn't called this. And actually someone's gone in and just changed the file name. And in the metadata, it's it's actually different. There's a different spelling or they've swapped a word around. So being able to investigate that is quite important. And there's a couple of programs for doing that. Wavelab's great for giving you just a really plain text readout that you can then copy and paste into an email. Hofer I use for inputting everything because it's laid out like in a layman's way. Like you could send a screenshot of Hofer, what you've put in to a client, and it just looks like a Windows or Mac OS program. It doesn't look like Sadie. It doesn't look like any of the, you know, the, the, the deeper mastering programs that still use the sort of PQ input format that a lot of people obviously still use and love, but just keeping it simple. I mean, there's also a great free tool by Auburn, the broadcast company. Which Hofa program are you referring to that you're using? It's got a very, it's very, it's a very charmingly German name. It's just everything that does in a list. Hofa CD Burn DDP Master. Yeah, so the program that I use for inputting metadata is is the Hofa program. It's called cd-burn.ddp.master-pro. So there's a couple of different versions of it. That's the full version where you can basically export any format. You can do your MP3s from it. You can do your 24-bit masters, your CD masters. You can even do vinyl sides on it, but I don't really like the way that it works with that. And you can do great stuff like export it as a CSV file. You can do a, a branded PDF of your PQ sheet, which is fantastic. So you, you can print a, P, a PQ sheet that says, Joe Caithness Mastering did it on this day, my branding. So, you know, if that's ever picked up by somebody later on, or they're going to reissue the, the CD and they want to go into the metadata to make sure this is the right version of it, it just keeps it very, very tidy. Like I'm a big fan of keeping data and audio tidy for the future so that people can appreciate that you've done that and literally put your name on it and my branding and say, you know, this guy, God, his stuff's really good. His, you know, he mastered this album, it sounds good. The PQ sheet looks great. Everything's put in properly. We had absolutely no problems pulling it up. And I think that's what well, it does get me business behaving like that. And I think spending just a little bit of time getting that into your workflow can go a very, very long way. That's just an, uh, a great way to operate all the way around, I think. Just doing your due diligence on all aspects everything else, including the audio, but just everything else, all the all the, the dotting the I's, crossing the T's, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, just even emails. Like the, I've had very strange experiences with paying for services off people where I'm in the pub. I mean, if you can remember what pubs were like, um, <laughs> I'm sort of dying, dying for a pint at this point. And you've signed off at the end of the day and you've... Just, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, but a professional service that I've got off somebody else, say like something for my house, when I'm doing my house up. And at 9.30, I've got a text that says, sent from John's iPhone with no capital letters, no punctuation, that says, oh yeah, yeah, just so you know, we ended up putting this one in. And I'm thinking, well, if that's the way your brain remembers that you've you know, made a hole in my wall and put a pipe through it, that doesn't make me feel like I want you to come back in my house and and do more of it. You know, I mean, it's a strange analogy, but it kind of works. Like I don't really answer emails in the evening. I don't 
really do it off my phone unless it's like a, oh shit, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was the, I didn't put the adjusted version on. I'll do it tomorrow morning. Just, just hold out, you know, something like that. Just mm -hmm. a little interim message and not really trying to explain sample rate conversion to somebody who is in a rock band and doesn't record themselves, but it's, you know, oh, someone sent me a 96 thing. You know, what's, what does this mean? Is this an MP3? You know, me trying to write that in the pub while someone's telling me about whatever thing they're watching on Netflix while I've had two pints, you know, it's just, it's not, it happens. And yeah. the urge is there yeah. with it in your phone, but you have to resist it because I think that person could log on the next day and be like, right, did the mastering guy get back to me? And he'd be like, what's that? What's, why is he put a Y instead of a T because he's writing on his phone and hasn't looked at the email before sending it? Stuff like that, because you never know when your email thread's going to get pulled up. It might be that you're about to get given an amazing opportunity to work with a label that's joined up with a with your, one of your clients or one of your clients has gone on to work with a bigger label and they're like let me just show you this thing that joe worked on and then they'll, they'll the email will, will resurface and you want that email to be as good as how you're going to speak to this big label so i've made a, a big big point of tidying up everything as far as a couple of years ago when i put my name on the branding i was like right i need to act the highest quality in everything that I do. I got proper photos taken of me just to put on LinkedIn. I redid my website. I took any slightly strange wording off stuff. I took all of my gear off my website. I just put the brand names on there just so I could support the companies. I made sure all of the calls to action from my emails and my websites, my Facebook, my LinkedIn, everything is as clear as it could be. And no one's going to find me discussing politics on Facebook or talking about what I've had for dinner it's all very clear that if you search for joe caithness it's the mastering guy and he's wicked at mastering let's talk to him and nothing else clouds that that whole thing which has made me a lot more comfortable because it means that i don't during a a general election start ranting on facebook i do sometimes but not very often <laughs> and it, it's it's kind of whipped me into into shape as far as my behavior goes once you put your name on it there's no turning back, really, especially if you call Joe Caithness, a name as obscure as that. Yeah, there's not too many Joe Caithnesses around. Yes. That is fascinating on a number of levels. I, and you gave me a bunch of information. I just want to, I don't want to dissect every bit of it, but a couple things. Number one, you said, I pulled all the gear off my website. Why did you do that? Because I didn't want people to, to waste my time. Not often, but I would get people tire kicking, you know, and saying like, hey, I see you got this thing. I've got this thing. And you're like, sort of like, well, good for you. But what have you worked on? And then people don't want to talk to you. Like, I've had some very strange conversations to do with gear. I've had a fairly well-known mastering engineer send me some very strange emails about why I should be using certain equipment and things. And I just think if I could make it so that I can't even start conversations about equipment, mm -hmm. then I'm never going to worry about it. Like on my website, I've got monitoring by, by Focal because I have a really good relationship with Focal from back when I used to sell their speakers and I love their speakers and they do me a great service on them. And I want people to know that because that's a, a mutual self-interest thing. That's not me showing off. That's just me saying, thank you for your service. I'd like people to know that you serve me. Once I start getting into the, you know, people put power conditioners on their websites. You can go as deep as you want. If you're a recording studio and you have a dry hire set up, that makes perfect sense. Because if I'm going to go into a studio and pay £300 a day, 
I want there to be a JCM 800. I also want there to be an Orange Crush. You know, I want the, I want them to have an MD421 and I want them to have an SM57. So I want to check that just to make sure they're up to that sort of level. So if I'm going to go and record my band, I know that they've got the requisite stuff for, for recording a rock band. But when it comes to compression, EQ, limiting, metadata and QC, none of that stuff matters because you're not plugging into it. It's not like your client's going to come and say, I came to your studio because I want you to run this through your Manly Massive Passive. But it might not sound very good run through that. It might sound amazing coming through Equilibrium or something. You don't know until you've listened to it. Whereas if you're dry hiring a studio, you need a amp, you need cabs, you need microphones. So that makes perfect sense. But beyond that, I can't really see any reason to list stuff. I love that. Completely agree with that. That's fantastic. The other aspect of this, you have made a conscious decision to put out a very professional and together presence. You say you're not on Facebook posting pictures of your food or talking about politics. Does this tie into, I mean, obviously it ties into your, your view of professionalism. I find it very interesting because you come from a very punk rock background. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's almost, I'm not going to say it's the antithesis really, because punk rock can mean many things to many people. And to me, it can mean doing things the way that you see, doing things the opposite of others. And did you make a conscious decision to go in this direction because you saw others doing what you didn't like? Yeah, sort of. I mean, just to put a small bit of context on that, like, I put out my first like punk records when I was 16. I've played in lots of bands. I've toured lots. I've toured in Europe. I, I helped found a fairly well-known DIY venue in Nottingham with my friend Phil Booth called JT Saw, which is actually a recording studio and venue. And that runs off the co-principles of do it properly, but do it with the maximum accessibility. So maximum accessibility, but also do it properly. So... Yes, the gigs are on the floor. Yes, there's no proper door person. There's just somebody standing there stamping your hand. But when you get in there, the sound is proper. We can record the gigs. It is also a professional recording studio. If you loved going to that gig there and you had an amazing time, you drank three bottles of wine and threw up, but it was the best music you ever heard. Well, guess what? You can actually go back and record a high quality recording in that very room. You don't have to have like vibes and chaos and professionalism. You can have like, it's quite hard to get to that top of that pyramid, but it is totally possible to work with fringe outsider artists, but provide them with a very high quality mastering service that has all the correct metadata, because I do a lot of that. I work with a lot of people who it's like, oh, I've recorded this thing. It's like a mixture of black metal and mid-90s emo. And I've decided that I was going to do it one night. I recorded it, you know, all to a four track. I, I showed it to a few people. They actually reckon it's quite good. Can you master it? And I just say, yep, just give me that thing. Like whatever that weird thing is that you've done, I am confident that I can at least get to the point where you can share it with people. Like it will be properly presented. And if it's going to vinyl, I can, you know, I can say why it might not work on vinyl. I can tell you why your side's too long. I don't see it as in conflict with, I just see it as properly facilitating that level of chaos. Like let, let the musicians and the artists be as chaotic and creative as they want. And then as professionals, it's our job to then put that into context. If there's anything that mastering is, it's that. It's taking something which is art and being able to then turn it into a product that people can experience. 
Moving on from the these topics, I wanted to ask you, do you have proper work-life balance or are you obsessed with what you do and at the peril of your, your outside world? So having listened to every episode of the podcast, the answer is usually the same is that I should have better work-life balance. I know what I have to do to have better work-life balance and I'm sort of on the way to it. And I, I, I'm sort of in the same position. My studio is in my garden, but I work office hours. Unless there's a problem, I don't go back into the studio. The only reason I leave the studio in the day is to eat or to go and receive test pressings from the front door. I have a, a doorbell set up in here. When I'm in here, I'm in here. It's like I'm, I'm clocked in. I don't really do emails outside of work unless it's something I can answer quickly and I can jump on the laptop. I don't think that me using my time with a headache and my ears being shot from a day of working is really beneficial to the clients. Like this is the, one of the points where I, that I wanted to make my workflow so unbelievably smooth was so that I could get it all done in one day. Like I don't, I never have to burn at both ends. I, I can, because I'm not having to recall, because I'm not having to do versions in real time, I can get it done by five and I can send all the emails and then I can go and sit down and have a meal. And I'm, I'm managing to do that, making good money for what I want to do and not ever work any extra hours. Whereas my friends who are, you know, doing live sound or, well, not at the moment, but doing live sound or doing recording studio stuff or outside broadcast, they find that incredibly difficult because the hours are so crazy and mastering is probably the safest world as far as being able to put a stop at the end of the day goes because you are normally on your own. But, you know, I have I have a few issues. Like I have I have some rheumatic problems that I've had since I was a teenager that run in the family. So I have medication I have to take at night before I go to bed. And I have codeine, which is not a particularly great thing to take before listening to anything because mm. it makes it almost impossible to concentrate. Yeah. So there are times where I, I have a lot of problem sleeping because of my back and my neck. And I wake up at, at two in the morning and I take painkillers and I do have to write the day off for mastering. And I need to know that the next day I can pick it up and it doesn't snowball. So since I've had the studio in the garden, I've got it better. The, obviously, this year it's been very, very hard. I'm, I mean, right now I'm sitting with my legs crossed in my flipping chair with proper, proper back support and I've just realised that I'm doing it. But yeah, as far as, to be honest, the only thing that I struggle with work-life balance is just health stuff. It's just being able to get good posture, being able to listen for long times and not being sedentary. I mean, the being sedentary thing I know comes up, comes up a lot on the podcast. And mm -hmm. this year I've made a, like, I've got back into skateboarding and I've made a big thing. Like yesterday we went out for a couple of hours and I've got really into freestyle skateboarding. I don't know if anybody who listens knows, knows what that is, but it's the 80s Rodney Mullen type of skateboarding. And it's the most analytical, most technical type of skateboarding you can do. So it appeals to someone who wants to watch loads of videos about learning about very small amounts of movements, but it's also good for my back. And it makes me do every single movement that my back, well, I'm, I'm struggling to do quite a few tricks at the moment because of it. But it's kind of the opposite of sitting in a chair between two speakers. It's moving in every direction at once. So I've made a few decisions to find opposites of my mastering health mm -hmm. situation. Well, and finally, your financial outlook, your philosophy about dealing with the money that you make. You've already given us a little bit of an indication of that by talking about paring down and getting what you need 
to help others and not necessarily just satisfy some tactile desire to have a piece of gear. But when it comes down to it, what are your financial thoughts and philosophies? So I've done it all completely wrong. I feel like the antidote is always near the poison with these things. Like, <laughs> as I mentioned, I I was living very, very badly, very poor, struggling. You know, I used to sell my possessions quite a lot. I used to, I have a lot of records. I used to sell my records quite a lot and then rebuy them and stuff. And I got to a point where I had an opportunity to buy pretty much the cheapest flat on the market at the time when the housing market was very low. And my parents took me to one side and said, this is basically for what you do and the amount of money you own, this is the, pretty much the only way you're going to be able to buy property. So I did that. And then me and my girlfriend at the time, now wife, moved into that very, very small flat. And I, at that point, started to understand what debt actually was. Once you faced mortgage payments and you look at that that amount of money and you look at your bank statements and you look at your overdraft you you begin to think what am i doing like i'm living cash flow is determining how i live as opposed to the amount of work i'm doing and the amount of money that i'm accruing and long story story short what we actually ended up doing is the flat purely by a fate is behind the mastering studio it's it's directly behind the mastering studio we live in a different house now which is on the other side of, of the same wall and what I did was I decided that I was going to get rid of every single piece of debt that I had. I wasn't going to buy any more equipment apart from things that I needed to replace. And I was going to put my studio on my property. I wasn't going to ever get into a situation where I could have a facility yanked out from below me, which has happened a couple of times. The amount of money you lose by getting yourself in a precarious short-term rent situation is phenomenal when you look back at it. I know you've you've talked about this before on the podcast, the, mm. you know, the, the sinkholes you can get into, which feel fantastic at the time because you've got a new studio, you've got somewhere to go. But I am, apart from my mortgage, I'm now completely debt-free. I paid off, I borrowed some money from my wife to buy my monitors when I moved studio. I built the studio with a bank loan and I paid it back a year after I got it out. I didn't buy any analog equipment. I didn't buy any new gear really at all for that year. I just had a savings goal and the the feeling of paying off a studio which belongs to you, you know, an actual genuine thing in your garden that you can walk to in the morning is bigger than any compressor delivery that you're gonna get off mm. from, a, from a late night eBay thing. The thrill of that is always gonna be bigger. So my advice to people is if you can invest in some sort of property or you can invest in anything which is tangible that is going to hold value or increase value, do that before you even think about, God forbid, leasing equipment. Like mm. I can't, my brain just can't fathom where I would be now if I'd had carried on the way I was, paying £600 a month for rent on a house and a studio instead of paying £200 on a mortgage and having a, stu and, and having a you know, increased... I mean, it's, it sounds... Crest almost talk about it, but you know, I've increased the value of my actual property that I bought by mm -hmm. putting a studio on it. Like, what an amazing win-win situation. I've got somewhere to work from. And like I say, I haven't built it like a crazy mastering studio with loads of, you know, and a lobby and stuff. I built it like the next owner's yoga studio. Like I've done that on, on, on purpose. <laughs> so that when I do move into our next place and we have a converted barn or whatever, 
and we, you know, we, we make some money on selling this place, that's when I'll get the acoustician in. It's just having a much more long-term view of it. And I don't, I'm not going to do anything else. I've never done anything else. I started when I was 21, which is quite young for a mastering engineer. I'm now 34. Like, I would like to think that I'm going to be doing this when I'm 60. And that's the point where I can, you know, stand with my hands on my hips outside my amazing mastering studio with the best espresso machine I can get and a lovely sofa. Like, at this point... <laughs> I don't need it. What I need, and this is what I do when I get depressed about stuff, I go on my, my credits bit on my website and I go, yeah, those are pretty sick records, actually. You know, like some of the stuff that I've worked on, I got my first platinum disc just before Christmas and I put it up in my lounge and it's like, as far as the ego boosts, that, that'll do. I don't need a receptionist and someone to bring me a coffee halfway through a session. I just need to know that, that I've done the work and that people like it because that's really, if I get paid, I enjoy doing the work and the people who buy it enjoy it. That's all I could ever, ever need. The rest of it, I could do it in a cave if that's what I could get away with. It doesn't mean anything to me. The work is the only thing that means stuff to me, really. Man, I love it. I love hearing that and the satisfaction of being debt-free. Man, if there's anything, I'll just reinforce in what you said, it's that. And to those listening that are in debt, listen to what Joe's saying, because it is the satisfaction you get is immense, immense. So, well, Joe, where can people find out more about you? So you can go on joecaithnessmastering.com, which has my credits. It has a contact form if you want to send any questions. You can also just email me, uh, contact at joecaithnessmastering.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't use it very often. I mostly use it just to occasionally show off about things and say thanks for the Working Class Audio podcast, for example. <laughs> Mostly the best way to get me is, is via email. Like, like I said earlier, probably best to not try and find me on Facebook and ask me questions because you won't get a good answer out of me. But if anybody wants any information about my work or wants any advice or wants me to expand on anything, just send me an email because there will be a point where I'm QCing an eight disc box set and I can just go through and properly think about the stuff and, and write things out for people. I've also, um, there's links to Discogs on there, which is partially complete and then I've got my selected credits which is the things that I really want to share with people and a few videos and bits and bobs that are on there to take a look at but gear you won't find out much like we've said the work there's loads of stuff to look at fantastic obviously I'll include all of that in the show notes and uh, Joe it's been a pleasure talking to you I really appreciate your time and it was great great to hear your perspective on things thank you very much all right take care our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Joe Kathness here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave a positive review. It really helps the show out. That's all for me today. Want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. 
Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.